0: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com.
1: This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and
2: mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant, so as a plant that could communicate human beings
3: with gods or mother nature.
2: What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body.
1: Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Roland Camacho, Hearst Ranch Beef Manager, and Jensen Lorenzen, founder of the Larder Meat Company. In today's episode. We'll talk to Roland and Jensen about making and selling sustainable beef, how their customers benefit from a very local collaboration, and we'll get a double Julia moment from Roland and Jensen. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our well wishes to everyone coping with the pandemic and our gratitude to all the essential workers keeping the world going. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was on a mission to ensure people had a better understanding of where their food comes from and how it is produced. This is also part of the Foundation's mission and a reason behind this podcast. Julia knew that one of the keys to a better food system was for eaters to truly value what goes into making a steak taste delicious. Julia once said, any cook is well advised, learn as much as possible about grades and cuts of beef, as a vague beef buyer is open to countless unnecessary disappointments and expenses. Joining us today are two people who have also made it their mission to help cooks avoid the very disappointment of vague beef buying. I know Julia would have been tremendously interested in their collaboration and delight in its availability so close to where she lived at the end of her life in Santa Barbara, California. Roland Camacho oversees Hearst Ranch beef at the Hearst Ranch on California's central coast near San Simeon, home of the famous Hearst Castle. Hearst is the largest agricultural landowner on the Central Coast and the largest single-source producer of free-range grass-fed beef in the U.S. Prior to joining Hearst in 2006, Roland served as Director of Cattle Procurement for Brawley Beef. He graduated from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and served in the U.S. Army. Jensen Lorenzen is a California Central Coast native and an avid outdoorsman. His respect for nature led him to become a chef, and as a chef, he worked to source ingredients from local farmers, ranchers, foragers, cheesemakers, brewers, and vintners. In 2015, he founded the Larder Meat Company with his wife, Grace, in an effort to bridge the gap between high-quality meat producers and consumers. Prior to founding the Larder Meat Company, Jensen was the chef and owner of the Cass House restaurant in Cayucas, California, well known for its local, seasonal, and sustainable menus. Roland and Jensen join us today to talk about what makes for sustainable meat and their recent collaboration as producer and seller. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen.
1: Hey, Todd. Thanks for having us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you.
2: Pleasure. So, Roland, why don't we start with you? So, how does Hearst Ranch rave, raise its beef differently?
3: Well, I think it's probably best to say that our our vertical integration probably sets us apart from the you know, standard um, conventional production methodology. Um, We have two ranches, uh, two Hearst ranches, rather, that are about 65 miles apart from each other. And on those ranches, we have um, the working cattle operations. So uh, for the most part, there's cows and calves. But what sets us apart is that we retain those calves and then raise them until they're finished. So um, our core... Kind of uh, commitment is to sustainably produce cattle. Uh, we're definitely conservation minded, but we also want to produce uh, a standalone grass-fed, grass-finished, minimally processed animal. So, what that means is, is our cowherds um, are are kind of used to do two purposes. One is to provide a uh, a dual-purpose animal, one that can sustain um you know to be to create good mothers and and ultimately sustain our cow herds but also to um through genetic selection and through you know phenotypic and genotypic traits be able to uh create an animal that is going to finish uh well on these on these properties here in the Central Coast so while we're you know creating these cow herds to sustain we're also creating an animal that's going to that's going to produce, you know, a, a, a good finished grass-fed animal.
2: And maybe we could go back and talk about what in sort of, in because that was slightly technical, which is fine, but <laughs> kind of assumes that maybe everyone listening even under, understand what the goals of sort of sustainable meat are. Or, so maybe you could go backtrack. I should have asked you that first to kind of define like Hearst's approach even to like, why why even sustainable meat and these practices are, are valuable?
3: Well well sure, sure. So Hirsch has been raising cattle on this property since 1865. And the uh, you know, the idea of having or producing a grass-fed animal has been tossed around for 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 many, many years. And then it was about 20 years ago when they decided that, you know, why would we just work with one specific um segment of the industry you know why why most producers uh cattle ranchers for the most part say they will they'll have their cow herd they'll turn their bulls out on it and once those uh that that cowboy lifestyle um once those calves are weaned then they're usually sold off on a truck and they go down the road to the next segment of the industry so um then somebody else usually purchase them put them out on grass uh for the next six to eight to 10 months of their life. Um, and then oftentimes they're sold again to, to the feedlot. And that's really, it might be, a, it's a very simplified version of how the um, cattle industry works. Well, Hurst, we didn't, we didn't want to do that anymore. So uh, we decided that it makes sense for us to control the genetics, to be able to provide an animal that we can tell you everything about it, be able to, from the, from what we decided to put together to create that animal and provide uh, that peace of mind for anybody that's going to purchase it at the end. So, uh, we use the cattle to maintain the resource. We obviously have to use intensive grazing strategies to be able to, you know, maintain the resource, not overgraze, not undergraze, use it to maintain and protect the resource, but also to be able to allow an animal a uh, beef animal to be able to engage in its preternatural you know its natural be- behavior to be able to graze freely live its life on our properties and then once it's ready we'll go ahead and harvest an animal and then produce a happy wholesome grass-fed finished beef product that we can be proud of that we could tell the customers that want to buy our product everything about it if they are interested and we can go all the way back to you know the genetics of the mother and the father
2: Maybe I'll swap. Actually, I was going to ask you this follow-up question, Roland. But I think it might be if you'll permit me, because we haven't talked about your collaboration yet. But just leap ahead and ask Jensen. You know, given Roland's explanation, which sounds wonderful, on a more simplistic level, like why why should consumers care about? He was describing their philosophy of how what is termed single-source beef. Mm -hmm. Like why why should we care or value that, Jensen, Mm -hmm. as as eaters and consumers?
1: Um, I think, you know, I, I think everybody's going to have their, their own reason for, for caring about that. But I, I think it, it kind of speaks to, you know, wh- why we do what we do. Um, and for, for us, for me, for, for Larder, um, I was, you know, I'm interested in having a, a triple bottom line impact on, on the local food shed and our consumers and the producers. Um, and another way to say that is that I think it's, it needs to be sustainable for everyone involved. Um, and I think that the consumer plays a major role in that, you know, it has to be financially viable for the producer, for, for us as the distributor and vendor, and also for the consumer. And I think the closer you get to the source, the, the more um, just generally sustainable it is. And I think uh, knowing your source is the first step, um, knowing where it comes from, how it's treated, um, how it's raised and where it goes, you know, that all goes into, into transparency And i think the you know the the program that that roland has and that that um and the the mission of larder i think speaks to that and and if you're interested in those types of things then you know then then all these things make sense to to the the end consumer um so that's you know just generally i think that that's that's the reason for it
2: and do you think the meat actually tastes better
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah i I think (laughs) and again i think the closer you get to the source the, the more you'll see that, you know, um, I, I, I grew up eating, you know, any type of meat, um, everything from, from wild game to, you know, ch- chicken breast from the grocery store. I think the closer you get to the source, the the better it tastes. Um, and I think just, you know, basically the reason for that is that the, you know, the, the closer the animal is to the way it should be raised or not should be raised, but the way that is designed to, to live in nature, I think the more you taste um, the local terroir of that animal and what it's, what it's been eating. And, and if, you know, a ruminant is meant to eat grass, you, you get a lot of the nutrients from the grass. And I think you, you, I I wouldn't say it tastes grassy. Some people say that. I think that's um, more um, a product of the way that it's, it's handled. Um, But yeah, I, I think it generally like this beef tastes more like beef to me. This, the, the chicken that, that we just, you know, that we, that we ship tastes more like chicken because it's, just free, open, you know, raised on an open range, eating bugs and grass and worms and things. Um, same with, you know, I make the same argument with with wild, sustainably caught seafood. Um, it, it tastes like the, the the food that it's eating in the ocean, open water. So yeah, I think it tastes uh, quite a bit better. And I would, you know, that's, that's me personally, but we've also had plenty of people um, that have tried our products that have, you know, emailed me and called and said, hey, I, I had no idea that it's so vastly different of a flavor than what I was used to, you know, than what I grew up eating. Um, so, yeah.
2: No, I know that's one of the challenges, which is a lot of people, or there's a whole generation that are accustomed to more mass-produced uh, feedlot beef and and uh, other types of uh, poultry. And so it, there is a, sometimes a disconnect. While we're on the sustainability topic, I think one of the things that I find really fascinating and important and, and really valuable to share is the... F- overall land conservation and sustainable philosophy at Hearst ranch. And so Roland, I, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of explain to us what is the land conservation effort at Hearst ranch and, and also to say not just what's been done, but what that means for the future of the ranch and the the future of the herd.
3: Oh, absolutely. So, um, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty complex, uh, easement deal, but I'll, I'll hit the main highlight points of it. So, um, in the early 2000s, there was quite a bit of discussion of what the what Hearst was going to do uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, maintain this property for, for forever. And uh, I think about in 2002, they started to work on this deal and it was inked in 2005 between the American Land Conservancy, California Ranch Lands Trust and the state of California. Well, basically what that did was it took the 128 square miles of the Piedras Blancos ranch and it protected it in perpetuity. So it allowed for us to, uh, there's provisions in there for us to maintain agricultural operations. Uh, We're monitored, you know, every six months in the spring and in the fall to make sure that we are indeed protecting all of the thousand or more species of plant and animal life that are on on the property and and we're and we're going and, and then we're not going to develop the property so there are minimum number there's a, a very very limited amount of home sites that were are allowed to be um produced on this property at i think it's in the in the low 20s i believe but but outside of that it will always be used uh as a as a, as a cattle ranch and the resource will always be protected so um that is well, one it, reason it,
2: Go ahead. Roland I just just as since we're we're on radio I'll just set the scene for people that you're talking about something that's 83,000 acres of prime California right off the ocean into the gentle rolling hills it's not you know inland desert useless land it's prime property that's being preserved that could be used and would be desirable to many many people
3: Absolutely. I mean, there are countless watersheds on this property. It's 18 miles of pristine coastline. This is a very, very big, big deal. And that definitely dovetails into um, the philosophy about what we do at Hearst. So the property is going to be protected forever. It is monitored, like I said, every six months. We are protecting the cowboy traditional way of life we're allowing, we're still running a cattle operation on it, and we're using these animal units as tools to maintain this resource through our grazing management efforts. Well, what that also does is it also guarantees that we're not going to overuse this property. We're not going to put a feedlot on it. So that, in, in terms of the Hirsch Ranch beef impacts of it, it means that we, we will reach our our, uh, point of diminishing returns we'll reach a spot where we can our full saturation of number of of animals that we can produce so we're not going to produce them and we don't produce them year round we allow the seasons and the resource to dictate the amount of cattle that we're going to create so at this point we're at about 1400 head of finished cattle over over both ranches and both ranches are managed almost identically um, but we're never going to push the resource the resource is going to dictate to us how big we're going to grow this this program.
2: Yeah, you're kind of talking about, and and, and this is helpful because I think it, it's hard sometimes for people to get a, behind the buzzword of sustainability. It sounds great. But what does it mean? And, and we'll mm-hmm. maybe talk a little bit more about the controversy about whether people should eat meat or not. But I think from listening to you, the analogy I could give is you're kind of putting it back to 1865 when this was before a lot of, quote, innovation in food production happened, and that you've returned and or continued, you've been doing it for a while, but to the symbiotic relationship that exists in nature between land, wild animals, and domesticated animals on a property, right?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, all of these things are going to tie back together, and it kind of brings us right back to the flavor profile that you were talking about with with, with grass-fed beef. Is that because we are putting the resource first and we're allowing the seasons and the availability of grasses to dictate what we do and when, that means all of our animals that we have complete control over genetically are always eating the same types of grasses that we are propagating and maintaining on this resource at the same time of year. So we've really kind of been honing this in over the last 15 years to be able to have our animals finished at the peak ideal grass time and what that does is is it gives a consistent flavor profile based on the grasses that are here on the central coast to our product every single year so while the availability of the fresh product might only be seasonally three or four months we are kind of stopping time right there at the same exact point in the year to produce an extremely consistent grass-fed product which has been probably one of the biggest um, challenges in the past in grass-fed production is that there's variations of flavors based on the variations of feed because forages and roughages change drastically based on region and, and your feeding protocols. But with us, we're getting those same naturally produced grasses seasonally into our product at the very same time, so people can expect to get the same flavor profile in the products that we're producing.
2: I think that's a great segue to, to ask Jensen now, because I think to some degree, what you're speaking to is what uh, sellers or wholesalers of beef want, which is a very consistent product. Chefs like Jensen might slightly differ of what, how important that is. But Jensen, could we switch back to you about, you were mentioning it, and maybe you can speak more about the mission behind the larger meat company, and then how that mission intersects with with working with Hearst Ranch.
1: Yeah. Um, well, like I, like I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, we're our, in essence we're local meat delivered. So that, that's where everything starts. Uh, we, we wanted, when we, when we first started our meat company, we were actually only sourcing and shipping within our County. Um, and that came from, you know, I was, I was a chef for a long time in this area, work, working with local ranches and, and, um, and farmers. And my last restaurant, we sourced just, you know, the entire menu from, from a local area. So I became, um, you know, uh, intimately involved with with uh the local ranchers and um we, we had a whole animal program at the restaurant so we you know we'd we'd buy a whole steer and process quarters um, at a time and same with lamb and, and and pigs and so i i kind of i knew i knew that sourcing whole animals from the the local food shed was was a really was i mean for me the best way to get the best product that made sense for this the, the concept of, a uh, you know, supporting the local food shed through the lens of a restaurant. I knew that, I knew that that worked for us, but I also knew how difficult it was. I mean, this was a, a daily, a daily task that, you know, we, we were either communicating with ranchers or processing the animal or, or, you know, scheduling kill dates. I mean, it was, it was like a side job that I had while running the restaurant. Um, so then, you know, flash forward to the year we closed our, our last restaurant, um, just out of convenience, I, I started buying meat from the grocery store again. And I was just, I was, I don't want to say indiscriminate, but I just, I wasn't as um, as picky as, as I had been as a chef because I, I wasn't trying to do the same thing. I was just trying to feed my family. Um, but I was, I, it, it was pretty obvious of the, how, how different the product was. And, and I, and I knew that going into it just for, you know, for whatever reason, yeah, I, know I re- reverted back to buying product from the grocery store. And so then I was like, okay, well, I need I need to go back to what I, what I had been doing for the last twenty years, and that meant sourcing whole animals. But then I also knew how difficult that was and how how impractical that is for the home consumer. You know, you you can you can realistically go to a rancher and buy a whole beef, and, and plenty of people do. I live in a city. Um, I don't have a huge freezer. I have a tiny kitchen. You know, I that that wasn't a practical measure for me. But I knew that I had the capacity to make that happen for other people if I was to create a program. Um, that, that would allow for that, and to me that meant, you know, this this type of uh, a product share program or a, a CSA model, community supported agriculture model, um, which had been had been done with produce for a long time. So I knew that I could apply the same kind of the same measures to to ranching, and then essentially have the exact same products that I was working with at my last restaurant um, in my home. And I knew that if if I wanted that, um, but it was difficult to do but that I could actually accomplish it, that other people would want it, and that they wouldn't want to have to take the difficult steps to get it done, and that I was in a unique position to be able to do that on their behalf. So local meat delivered, but it also had to be convenient. And then then the tack-on for that is, to me personally, just from an ethical and moral standpoint, it has to be a sustainable relationship, and that's what I mentioned. It has to be a triple bottom line relationship. And specifically, what I mean is that it has to be financially viable for everyone involved—that's producer, vendor, and consumer. It has to have some type of social impact, and I think that's that's where you get into, you know, into to terms like sustainable that are, are kind of hard to define. But to me, that means, um, you know, eating locally, bringing people to the table around local product, um, that which in turn has less a less a smaller carbon footprint. It gives you a greater relationship with your local food shed. Um, and then at the end of that would be would be transparency, and and then that goes into the environmental uh, impact, which you know, like I said, it's a smaller carbon footprint, less less hands uh, touching the product, uh, more of a direct connection to the producer, um, and just just generally um, a, an easier model to work with than some some nationwide distribution models. And and I would also say at the at the end of that, I have absolutely nothing against the the, the greater. Um, You know, commercial food industry as a whole—meat, produce, all of it—because I I think we we have a a social responsibility to 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 feed our country and and uh, parts of the world. And it's it's difficult for you know the the vast majority of people on on this planet to get access to food, let alone local food. So this is this is a relationship that um, that I think works here. It's viable here. uh, But that's uh, one of the reasons for that is because we're in such an amazing area. But that being said, I think that there's there's still a need for this this larger machinery uh, to to produce food for the world and for the rest of our country. Um, so, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, I mean that that I think that's very well put. Let's uh, we'll take a break and we're going to come back to talk more about sustainable meat production with Roland Camacho from Hearst Ranch and Jensen Lorenzen from the Larder Meat Company. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch Beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch Beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: Welcome back. We're talking about producing and selling high-quality beef on California's Central Coast with Hearst Ranch beef manager, Roland Camacho, and Larder Meat Company co-founder Jensen Lorenzen. So, Roland, in the before we went to break, Jensen was talking about a, a really good explanation of the model he's got and working with Hearst Ranch as, as a um, supplier, and then also how that kind of interrelates and is different than the global food system. But I think that's also the pandemic has really brought to light for a lot more people who don't live and breathe agriculture, or food production, or are professionally in the restaurant industry. But I did want to ask you both, because I think it's really relevant to what you're both doing, how the pandemic has affected you, or how you dealt with it, or or what your take is. So so Roland, has how has Hearst Ranch coped with the pandemic, or have you really been, in, in, in some degree, at least in terms of your business, immune from it?
3: well it, it we have been it's been affected everybody has been affected by it um, as far as ranch operations are concerned the day-to-day uh, cattle work and cowboying and agricultural operation that's on the ranch itself really was not not impacted too much I mean we we run with a very lean crew of, of cowboys and, and operators um, you know where we're, we're dealing with less than 20 people um, Covering you know eighty thousand acres in one location, seventy five in the other location. So um, their operations was business pretty much business as usual. As far as the administrative offices, you know obviously they were impacted, and we were able to work remote. But as far as the production management side of things of Hearst Ranch beef, creating you know the the Hearst Ranch beef model itself, it was definitely impacted by it. Uh, luckily. Uh, Stephen Hurst uh, and and the whole Hurst Corporation has been behind us and and allowed us to continue to move forward. But you know when when our core competencies end at the ranch, like we have the we have the cowboying and the the ability to create a perfect grass fed beef animal. We feel it's a perfect grass fed beef animal. Uh, but from the time that it leaves the ranch, every one of those stages of production along the way, were drastically impacted. We're dealing with with uh, Freight companies, you know, the live cattle transportation side of things. We're we're having to contract with with um, you know abattoirs, the kill plants, the the processing plants, the 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 box plants, the labeling companies, and every single one of those, their lead times were extended, doubled, tripled, sometimes even you know four or five times the the wait times. The, everybody's prices went up for all, for. All, all prices went up, so that meant our costs went up incrementally for each stage of production along the way, and and um, and and so that's where we we're that's where we were negatively affected is on is on the cost. But um, the Hearst Corporation was behind us, and we were not going to uh, we weren't going to let that stop us. So that's it was basically a financial and um, and a timing issue where we had to be prepared with it. So my my biggest challenge was maintaining these business relationships, making sure that. Um, we had a place to go, and we and and we were still able to make the product and time on target, get it delivered where it needed to be.
2: I wanted to, no thank you for that. That was a very uh, good delineation of the d- different things that changed and didn't and dramatically. So I'm curious on that because obviously the abattoirs have really been the slaughterhouses in in the news quite a bit, particularly the the concentration of facilities and how that has been if if you will in some ways a disease spreader and then also a log jam when there's a crisis so how had Hearst ranch been working in terms of its abattoirs that you because that's not part of what you control on the ranch right you're sending it out
3: that's correct I mean we um it, it's always been something that's on our mind to be prepared for um so um, we have a primary location that we go to and I have a secondary location that I'm, I'm, that I also maintain a relationship with. And then we had a tertiary location that we, uh, that I, that I think fig- that I got online as a, as of this year. So, um, it was very, um, nerve wracking at times, but we were able to maintain our spot because usually what happens in these types of locations is you're going to a, what they call a custom kill, um, location so these places they, they they provide this service to others while having their own brand or line of product that they're creating so sometimes they they may buy cattle and have their own brand of beef so with the increase in demand or shortage of beef supply i guess is what they were calling it um, they were killing more cattle for themselves and then that made left less room for the custom kill places uh, so I was in a constant, um, not to say battle, but it definitely was it required a lot of attention to make sure we had a place to go. And, and luckily we've, we've maintained these relationships and we don't jump ship. So we've had, you know, relationships with these companies for 10, 15, 15 years, and, and they were willing to, to work with us. Um, they did make some changes to us we, we weren't able to do. We didn't have the flexibility that we had in the past where we can modify the, the kill size where it would be 10 or 20 or 30 head where we had to make sure that we were sending in truckload lots just to make sure that they weren't having any downtime in between groups of cattle um so it was it was very challenging and it will continue to be challenging but luckily we've had and do maintain good working relationships with these custom kill locations out here in California
2: and were they um providing better safety for their employees? Did they have some of the same issues with, um, their workforce that made headlines or what was your experience?
3: We didn't have any of those experiences. No, the, you know, all the locations that we work with, they took it extremely, extremely seriously. And just like I mentioned, mentioned earlier, you know, they weren't able to process as fast, um. So, because they did put those um, procedures in place to protect their employees, but you you have to understand that these these places were already uh, state of the art in terms of their personal protective equipment because they're working with food safety standards. So, uh, they did have to add you know spacing requirements between the employees. But as far as I am aware, there were zero incidences of of outbreak or even uh, anybody even contracting it, um, this, this season At the three places. And, that we and, go
2: to. And, and do you think it's reasonable to conclude where there were these significant issues is where at a different sort of end of the marketplace, you're trying to cut as many corners as to keep the cost down, which is not sort of, which is the opposite end of which Hearst ranch is operating in.
3: You know, I, I really don't feel, uh, comfortable talking, speaking on anybody else's business. I, I only. Like we work, we're working specifically with companies that maintain an extremely high uh, standard of food safety. And, and they're doing several third party audits because, you know, I'm asking them to provide a service for me that, you know, um, that has an extremely high standard. They have to meet these requirements. And they, uh, so I don't, I, I can't speak for any of these other other companies. I just know that the ones that we work with, where we have the utmost confidence in them.
2: Well, fair enough. I mean, my takeaway from what you said is there's certainly a way to do it that is is safe and um, for both the employees and for the consumers because that's been your experience. So that that I think is reassuring to hear that it can be done. Um, so Jensen, let me turn to you and in, in how is how have you guys dealt with the pandemic and how has it impacted your business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's been
1: it's been interesting to say the least. Um, it it feels like there was a pre and post pandemic larger meat company they're like there, it feels like two different, um, two different operations, even though, you know, our, our, goals and our missions have always been the same. It, it was like, you know, at, at first, um, for a long time, see, we started 2015. Um, and it seems like, you know, get, getting going, it was like, I was always trying to convince people that this is a, this is a very practical and a better way to eat and buy, or buy and eat meat. Um, and that it's, you know, it's, I think for a long time people people under, understood the concept of eating local, but there was a disconnect between you know doing it and 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 and, and making it easy on people, and and I as a sh- as a, you know working as a chef, working with these local producers knew that um, my local supply, my local if you want to call it supply chain, but my local suppliers, my ranchers, my my farmers, and I and mean, even to some extent foragers were always more reliable for me with what I was trying to doing. With with what I was trying to do with what I was you know trying to get to my my customers, then working with um, with larger suppliers, and and I think part of that was was our scale. We were a fairly small restaurant, so I couldn't I couldn't meet a lot of minimums a lot of the times. So it was almost just way more practical for me to to leverage my local relationships than than um, working with with larger suppliers with some of the more important items like like meat and produce um, and fish included. So like I knew in my heart that this that this for us, for regional, for supplying a region, this, this was a better way to go. But it was like, I was always trying to convince people of that. And then, and then overnight, you know, we were getting calls like, you know, everybody's, you know, these, these plants are shutting down. There's, you know, meats, meat is, um, going quickly at the grocery stores. People started calling us like, how's your supply? What do you, you know, how, how you know, how, how is this affecting you? And, you know, we, Roland and I had countless conversations about this. I, I would call him like, "Hey, are we good today?" We, you know, and people were calling me, "Are we good?" It was it was really tense, but everything worked. Every like, it was like this this smaller, more manageable system was able to scale. I mean, literally overnight. Um, we you know we we basically quadrupled overnight, and and it was ex- it was exclusively because I, I think the way that this system is set up, it's set up to be able to to be able to manage, you know, these, these small regional, um, regional needs and, and, uh, and the supply chains are more regional, you know, smaller, et cetera. Um, so then, you know, it it was like overnight people understood what we were doing, like, like I had been trying to explain for the last four years. It, It was, it was really strange. And then since then, um, you know, I think it's, it's normalized online ordering, at least to a certain demographic. You know, I think, I think the, um, there's, there's probably always going to be people that are, that are uncomfortable going online. Um, you know I, I still I still go to, to Whole Foods for certain things obviously just not for my meat um, and I know there's there are people that, that do both things but I think it just it kind of normalized the idea of going onto a website getting all the information that you need about a, about a producer and, and saying okay yeah this, this meets all my needs this meets all my criteria for, for the type of meat I want to eat. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna sign up hit order and expect a box in, in the next month. And that was just something that was really hard to describe at first. It was hard it's hard to it's hard to, to to get people to understand why, you know, not only is this a great way to buy, but it's also, you know, more viable for all all parties involved. Um so that's kind of the way that, that we look at it. And and I, and then I would just say that we were, you know, very fortunate to be in a position to make this work for people. You know, there's an increased increased demand and we were able to meet that demand. And I just I feel eternally grateful for that that, that we have a program that was able to able to step up, um, albeit small There's just a couple of us, but we were able to make it work. So I just feel really fortunate for that and, and glad that we were able to help people when, you know, in the time of need.
2: Yeah, an ironic uh, situation for proof of concept. and So group, weird. But, yeah, you have no and, idea. Yeah. But for your customers, fortunate because yeah. there were certainly, I think people, things have normalized in a way of people really knowing how to cope. But back in March, there was that whole, I mean, there was essentially, at least in the Western world, a global panic. Over it was panic, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Exactly. What's it, how deeply is the is the supply chain and the food supply going to break down? Right. And why don't you just mention where you larder meat company is able to service geographically?
1: Um, so, so basically, the we, we focus on the West United States, so California, Arizona, Nevada. Um, we send a few shipments into Oregon and Seattle, um, and that's that's basically it for now.
2: And then, Roland, we didn't get to talk about where is Hearst Ranch Beef available in addition to the Larder Meat Company?
3: Well, it is available in the summer months uh, in the Whole Foods Market Southern Pacific region. So that's in the 44 to 46 Whole Foods stores from San Luis Obispo to San Diego in California. So, But that's, like I said, it's very, very seasonal, fresh in those stores. So we're talking from... Memorial Day to Labor Day, roughly, give or take uh, a couple of weeks. But outside of that, Larder Meat Company is 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 our is our main is our main outlet to hit the the, the public at large. I do some spot sales directly from the ranch, um, but very very minimal. Um, Larder Meat Company is the way to go. And I kind of wanted to to touch on that um, about the relationship with Larder Meat Company because. I mentioned earlier that our core competencies for production kind of end at the ranch. After that, we have to rely on, on other, on other, um, on other partners. And we had tried to do the online model or a version of an online model in the past. And we were unsuccessful at it. We weren't. And I think maybe, maybe we were too early or whatever the case may be. We just, it just didn't work out for us, but to find a partner that you can trust and To see to somebody like Jensen that understands full carcass utilization and also has a fulfillment solution, but also understands the ability to go out and find a customer base that is willing to put their trust in him to have a subscription type model where they're not picking and choosing ones of this and twos of that on a day-to-day basis has really set things up for us to have success. So this is a, such a symbiotic relationship. You know, I have a small window of time that I can produce products for the year and protect the resource. I needed to have a program that was scalable incrementally so that I'm not trying to go from 1,400 head to 3,000 head overnight. We were able to do this and Jensen was able, Jensen and I were able to come up with a, solution that was able to be incremental in growth and try to do it in 30 to 40 head, lots of cattle at a time. So it made sense. We were able to use slightly bigger, um, uh, production companies to make more product at a time. But Jensen was able to create programs and build trust with his customer base where they trust and trusted him to produce, to put together units that work for their families. So, um, this was kind of a match made in heaven.
2: And Jensen, does that mean that that Larder Meat Company, unlike Whole Foods, is able to sell Hearst Ranch beef year-round or or a longer season?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can we can ship year-round, exactly.
2: So, on another note, I'm sure anyone of our listeners who lives in other regions is getting very jealous and frustrated at the moment. <laughs> so. Um, you know i think you guys have done a great job of demonstrating the value of hyperlocal on on so many fronts particularly safety and sustainability and in terms of robustness and in terms of uh, a good product i was wondering though do you have any recommendations for people who live in other parts of the country that you guys can't or don't service like where would they start to try to find somebody who's you know and obviously i as a Californian natively, California is very rich in these kind of resources and capabilities that many parts of the country can't even compete with. But is there a starting place that either of you could point people to 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 try to find a close substitute?
1: Yeah, I I think, and Roland could probably pick up on this as well. I I think start with, um, I mean, I would always say start with a Google search for local butchers. Do that first. You know, some there are there are still butchers around, and I think support you know support them um, if possible. Um, and a lot of them do ship ship boxes, so I'd say start with that, uh, and then expand your search into you know look for look for the the products you're looking for. So let's just say it's grass fed beef. Um, say you know just search local grass fed beef delivered. Um, I, I think you'll I think you'll be surprised at what you can find. Um, and then, and then from there, just make sure that it's, you know, that whoever you're buying from is lining up with your, with your values. Um, Roland, would you, would you add to that?
3: Yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's, you pretty much nailed it. My suggestion would be to understand the claims that are being made mm-hmm. by, so if you think you want grass-fed beef. Maybe research what other claims are out there surrounding the grass-fed beef. Is it 100% grass-fed and grass-finished? Are there? Has it been ever been given any hormones? Has it ever been given any antibiotics? Does free-range matter to you? Do you mind if it's been fed grass in a feedlot? Does organic matter to you? Like, figure out what matters to you and to um, for you and for your family, and then apply those to the the local options and then the last thing i would be i would say is to to develop a relationship with with the company um you know any if you call the larder me company you're likely to talk to jensen or grace directly like Absolutely. within the day you know yes. if you call uh if you if you get a hold of the line for for her Ranch beef it's going to come to me directly and i'll and i'll get back to you within within a day and it's not a problem for me to take, you know, 20 to 30 calls a week explaining to people the difference between what we do and what other people do. So I would just say that identify the identify the adjectives and the claims that are important to you. Understand what they really mean and develop a relationship with that local producer and ask them the questions. They'll answer it if they're worth it.
2: Mm-hmm. That's great. Thanks, guys, for those uh, generous offers. Sure. Um, and if you're lucky enough to uh, live in the Central Coast or on the in the Southwest, uh, you'll we'll guide you where to go to to sign up. After the break, Roland and Jensen are each going to give us their own Julia moment. Stay with us. The new book of Julia's quotes: "People who love to eat are always the best people," and other wisdom is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller? Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, guys, Roland, do you want to go first? What's your Julia moment?
3: (laughs) Well, I grew up in a home, you know, with both parents that worked full-time. So quite often I was I was hanging out with my grandmother and I was at her house quite a bit. And she owned uh, a wedding cake company and she loved to bake and she loved to cook. And she always had cooking channels on all day long. That's pretty much all that she watched. And I remember several episodes. I mean, at this time, I believe, you know, Julia was doing more guest appearances than having her own shows at this time. And, you know, I I saw that she loved the use of butter (laughs) butter. (laughs) <laughs> and my grandmother always get the biggest kick out of that. So, um, and 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 she would also say, "Fat is flavor." So, I guess for me, and, and it's definitely worked into my life in the way that I cook and the way that I am is that I'm we're not afraid to use we're not afraid to use butter. We use grass fed butter, but we're not afraid to use butter, and um, and and we're not afraid of food. I loved her fearless approach to to cooking, and it was just very common sense oriented and and my grandmother loved it and it's and it's stuck with me so we use butter in our house
2: yeah we like we like that 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 is a good Julia legacy fully fully endorsed on our side Jensen how about you
3: yeah I,
1: it's it's hard to pick up one one moment specifically um I, I got a, just the biggest kick out of just her whole her whole bit um I think at one point she was dancing around with a, with a goose, you know, drinking wine on the set. I mean, I, I don't know, her whole persona was just so great. I, I think for for me, um, Julia Childs had the biggest impact, because at, at some level, she she brought, you know, the professional acumen into the home in a way that was super unintimidating. And um, I was not professionally trained. I just, I've, I've, I worked in kitchens from the time I was 14. Um, I didn't go to culinary school. So I was, you know, I, I never say self-taught, but I relied on on instructors uh, or chefs that were that were willing to to kind of kind of teach me, and that's that's somewhat hard to come by in our industry. Sometimes people like to, to guard their their secrets, and it, you know it is a trade. So um, I definitely you know I depended on people that were they were willing to show me that were unintimidating, um, and you know shows like like what Julia Child had. She she made it like Roland said. She just made it palatable for the home cook in a way that I, I hadn't seen before. Um, and I actually had in my, in my first kitchen, I had somewhat of a shrine to my influences and she was actually one of those. She was, we had a framed picture of Julia Child above, uh, above our range in my, actually it's above the past in my first kitchen. Um, Jacques Pepin was also there, Michelle O'Tier and Fernand Point were were also there, but Julia Child was the only one, the only female for sure. And the only one that wasn't in a toque and a chef's coat. So she, uh, she definitely had an impact on, on my career.
2: That's great. Thanks, guys. Those, those were uh, really meaningful ones, and, and I really appreciate that. And, and thank you for sharing today about your experiences and, and getting through the pandemic and your, your collaboration. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for giving us the opportunity, Todd. Appreciate it.
2: Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To learn more, you can go to hearstranch.com and it's at hearstranchbeef on Facebook and at hearst underscore ranch underscore beef on Instagram. For the larder meat company, it's go to lardermeatco.com and it's at lardermeatco on Facebook and Instagram. As always, to keep up with the foundation and new podcast episodes, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Solkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Joy's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member.